Alexander Hamilton. How many of you knew who Alexander Hamilton was before Lin-Manuel Miranda? Anybody know who Alexander? I like, I love history and I'll say, I really never paid attention to this guy until that Broadway play came out, Alexander Hamilton. If you're not familiar with that Broadway play, uh, this guy, Lin-Manuel Miranda, created this, this, this Broadway play and it was all done in hip hop. And uh, I think it was 2019, I don't know, a couple years ago. This play has uh, surpassed over a billion dollars in revenue on this play, Alexander Hamilton. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, One of the the songs that they sing in that song is called, uh, The World Was Wide Enough for Me. And one of the lyrics stuck out to me. The, the, the song talks about how Aaron Burr was in a duel with Alexander Hamilton and shoots Alexander Hamilton. And Alexander Hamilton kind of goes into like this mode of, I'm going to die, so here's some things for me to think about. And here's the line that stuck out to me. He says, legacy. What is a legacy? It's planting a seed in a garden that you will never see. I wrote some notes at the beginning of a song that someone else will sing for me. Legacy. What would you want your legacy to be? What would you want to be known for? I can't speak for you, but for me, I would like my life to matter. I would like to to have my life, and I don't mean like I want my legacy to be like I got my name on a building, like I'm not, that's not really concerning to me. But I want my legacy to be that I impacted the people around me. That because of my life, I I impacted my family and my kids, uh, my friends, our church, our community. I want to have an impact on people around me. And the question is, how do we, like if that's our desire, how do we do that? How do we have a legacy that impacts the people around us, that God would use us to, to, to impact those around us? that we would make a difference in people's lives. Well, I was thinking about this. I was thinking, well, maybe, maybe we need to be like a goat. You know, I'm not talking about, bah. is that what a goat, what is it? What is, I don't even know what a noise a goat makes. That's, that's a sheep, right? I don't know. Whatever the goat makes, I'm not talking about the animal. I'm talking about the goat, the greatest of all time. You know who the greatest of all time is? There's a bunch of them. Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time. Uh, uh, the Beatles, Better than that YouTube band, the Beatles, the greatest of all time. Uh, yes, I may have said that intentionally. Walt Disney, the GOAT, the greatest. Like, these are the greatest of all time. And you look at these, these great people. You look at Michael Jordan and the Beatles and, and Walt Disney, and you're like, what made them great? Is it because they're so talented? Is it because they're so gifted that they immediately become so wonderful? Not necessarily. There was a... a an article in the BBC, uh, the newspaper, where there was a, a sports scientist and they wrote a paper that were criticizing the current culture of youth sports. See, and youth sports right now, here's what they're trying to do is, is, is that they have these well-funded programs. All this money that pours in, they have these, these high-tech coaching programs and their goal with these kids that they want to make the GOATs the greatest of all time, their goal for these kids is to maximize the support for these young athletes to reduce the stress that they would face. Their goal is to say, man, these kids that are so talented, if we can just make their life easy, then they will be 
uber successful and they'll become the goat and they'll accomplish all these great things. And the authors in this study said that is a wrong approach. They said, they said these athletes, they need moments of challenge. They need trauma in order to develop resilience. The article said it's the rocky road, not the smooth path that leads to greatness. Is it possible that Maybe as we long for a legacy, maybe it's the same thing for us that it's actually the rocky road that leads us to greatness and not the smooth path that's nice and easy. In fact, I think about Michael Jordan. I know some of you are not into sports. I'm a sports guy. Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time. His story was that when he was a teenager, he got passed up to play on the varsity team in high school. Can you imagine being the coach that doesn't choose Michael Jordan to play on the varsity team? I don't think that guy has a job anymore, right? But he got passed up for the varsity team and he was totally devastated. He was like, this is all I wanted was to play basketball. He says, other people would have given up. Other people would have, would have said, ah, this, this is terrible. It's not fair. I give up. But Michael Jordan took that failure in stride. He worked harder to, be, to push himself to become better. And that famous quote from Michael Jordan was this, I've missed 9,000 shots. I've lost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to, to make the winning shot and I've missed. He says, I have failed over and over again in life and that is why I succeed. See, I think somehow, some way, God works through our struggles. God works through our failures and our hardships to help us be all that he has called us to be. That he has this ability that if we, as, as we think about this desire to have a legacy and to impact the people around us, man, it's not based on us being awesome. It's not based on how great we are. It's based on God preparing us, God doing a work in us to help us to be all that we are called to be. We've been in this series for the, through the book of Acts for uh, majority of this year. And it's been a, a series where we're trying to look and say, man, the early church in the book of Acts was, was, was a movement. It wasn't just an institution where you come and you sing some songs and you read some Bible and you say some prayers and you put some money in the offering and you go home. No, the, the, the early church was a movement that changed everything around them. It changed cities and communities and it was awesome and families and individuals and I love it. And as I'm thinking about our church, as we started thinking about this year, we're like, how do we become a movement? Not just an institution where you come and you worship and you pay your religious dues, but how do we become a movement that, that touches lives and impacts everything around us? That's why we're studying the book of Acts. Last week, uh, it was awesome. You know, because as I think about the book of Acts, I think about, you know that God doesn't need us to accomplish his works. Like God is all powerful. God is all knowing. God is, is, is all these. He doesn't need you and I to accomplish his work, but he chooses to work through us. Us feeble, sensitive people that are prone to wander, that are imperfect. That's why I think many of us can be here like, like Emily and be like, yeah, I'm not always the smartest in the room. Sometimes I say the wrong words and I do the wrong things and I'm kinda, I kind of got some, some baggage with me. But isn't it cool that God chooses to work through people like you and I? And this early church became a movement because these people were willing to, to serve God no matter what happened. 
And last week, we saw probably the second most important event in the book of Acts. The first most important event was uh, Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descended on the church and empowered the Holy Church to, to, to be who they were called to be. But the, second, but the second most important event was the Apostle Paul and his salvation experience. Remember the story we talked about last week that the, uh, this guy named Saul was on his way to Damascus. He's on his way to, to arrest Christians. He wants to go to the churches just like ours and say, you people that are claiming to be a Christian, I'm going to arrest you. I'm going to persecute you. I want to see you murdered because he was on a, st- on a mission to stop the mission of God from spreading. He's going to do everything in his power until he's confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's confronted by Jesus. He is blinded. He is powerless. And he is weak because he has this moment with God. And he goes into Damascus. And through a guy by the name of Ananias, he prays over him and allows Saul to regain his sight. And this is when Saul is converted to to Christianity. He places his faith in Jesus. And what's awesome is the story says right after that happened, right after he's baptized, verse 20, Acts 19, verse 20, it says, immediately Saul began to proclaim Jesus amongst the synagogue, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, it's not, it's just not the same man who came, who made havoc in Jerusalem against all those who claim to be Christians. See, see, Saul has this salvation experience. He, he becomes a Christian. And all of a sudden, he's telling everybody about Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. And this is what happens. This is why I love being around new believers because there's just an excitement. There's this passion. Like, this is amazing. This Jesus is amazing. I want to tell everybody about it. And that's Saul. He's like, guys, you have to hear this. Jesus is the son of God. And all the people are like, wait a second. Isn't this the guy who came to persecute us? Isn't this guy that, that's wreaking all the, the havoc? What is going on here? I love this. And obviously, if you know the story in Scripture, you know that Saul is going to get his name changed to Paul, and he's going to be the greatest missionary that ever lived. And we read this story, though, and we might be tempted to think, well, how does Paul become the greatest missionary and church planter ever? Oh, it's probably because he had that dramatic Jesus experience, right? Jesus confronted him on the road, and he had, this, he had this amazing story, and that's what made him gifted and equipped to go and be the greatest missionary and have this impact on all the people and, and write Bible, right? It's got to be because of that. That's not the case, though. Because Saul's dramatic salvation experience, it doesn't qualify him to be used by God. In fact, the text that we're in today that Jake read for us this morning is going to give us uh, this preparation. That God leads Saul through a time of, of preparation that prepares him to be all that God has called us to be, called him to be. And I think this same principle applies to us as we think about, man, what is our legacy going to be? How do I accomplish all that God wants me to do? Or how do I impact the people around me? I think there's a, a three-part process that's God's preparation plan to equip us to be all that God has called us to be. Number one, the first thing that God's going to do for Saul is going to cause him to spend time with God. Here's what it says in verse 22. It says, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now you see that word Christ in your Bible. Uh, that actually is the word for Messiah. It's the Hebrew word for Messiah. See, here's, here's the story. The, the, the Jews, they were, waiting, they were waiting for the Messiah. The Old Testament talks about this Messiah who's going to come. And the Jews were waiting all this time for the, the Messiah. They're waiting for him, but 
When Jesus came, they didn't recognize, oh, this can't be the Messiah. We expected the Messiah to be a political savior, some other thing. They did not recognize Jesus was the Messiah. And so the Jews, and this included Saul and the Pharisees, they're like, Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic, which is why they murdered him. But again, when Saul encounters Jesus, when Jesus confronts him on the road, suddenly he's like, no, Jesus is the Messiah. And what I find interesting is he has this dramatic salvation experience, and now all of a sudden, now all of a sudden, he can tell you from Scripture all about Jesus. He can, this is what it said, he's in, uh, he confounded all the, all the Jews of Damascus by proving Jesus was the Christ. He's taken the Old Testament saying, let me tell you how you're wrong, because this is Jesus. And you're like, I'm like, how did that happen? How did Saul go from something who did not know Jesus, who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah, to now being able to take the Bible, the Old Testament, and be able to say, I'm going to tell you everything about Jesus and how he is the Messiah. Let me tell you, in the margin of your Bible, next to verse 21 or 22, I want you to write Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 to 18. Galatians 1, verse 15 to 18, uh, the apostle Paul wrote this, and this is what he said. He said, when God was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I would preach to the Gentiles, this is what, this is salvation experience on the Damascus road. He says, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Verse 17, I did not go to Jerusalem to the apostles who were before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and I came back to Damascus. And then after three years, I went to Jerusalem. You see, in our text today, in Acts chapter 9, we read it sequentially. We read it like, oh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. This is the story. It happened immediately. These are the things that happened. But actually, in between verses 21 and 23, Paul had this three-year hi hi hiatus. There's this three-year pause in between verses 21 and 23. Well, we don't know how long it is, but Paul said in Galatians, he said, while I was in Damascus, I didn't go and consult anybody. Rather, I went to Arabia. I spent time in the wilderness. And then I came back to Damascus and I was there for three years. I'm like, what, is, what, what, what was he doing in this time period? Three years, what was Paul doing? Well, again, you think about what's happening in Paul's life. Paul's life has been flipped, turned upside down. Thank you, Will Smith, for that. His life is turned upside down and he's like, what is going on? Like, like I was here to persecute Jesus, to persecute Christians, and now I have this encounter and now I'm a Christian. And everything I believed, everything I believed the scriptures taught is wrong. And I think the apostle Paul goes to Arabia for however long of time. And I think he's wrestling through scripture. I think he's wrestling through all these things, trying to understand, man, how did I miss that Jesus is the Messiah? How did I miss that he is the son of God in the flesh? We don't know how long he was in Arabia, but I think, I think the Apostle Paul took his Bible under his arm. He went to Arabia and he's wrestling with God, spending time with God. Help me understand this. You see, restoration, one of the things we say, one of our family values is that we are a Bible people. Ultimately, because if you're coming to, to get advice in life from me, I, I'm not that smart. I, like my, we're going to talk for about three minutes and then I'm done because I got nothing else to say. We are a people that open the word of God because we don't need man's advice. We need God's wisdom. We need the, the wisdom of God. And the Bible is one big story. From the beginning to end, it's all about Jesus. And this is what the, the apostle Paul is, is learning at this point. He's like, hey, hey, the book of Genesis, 
It's not just about creation. It's actually about Jesus. And Moses and Moses leading uh, the Israelites through uh, uh, the Red Sea. That's not just about uh, an exodus. This is all pointing to Jesus. And the commandments, the Ten Commandments, and all the laws on the Old Testament, they're not there to tell us how we can be good enough to God. They're there to point us to our need for a Savior. They're there to point us to Jesus. And the Psalms, the Psalms are there. Why? So we can learn how to trust Jesus. And I think as, as Saul is, is coming to the realization, he spent however much time in Arabia wrestling with God, spending time with God, reading his words, saying, God, help me understand who this Jesus is. And after that time where he spent that time with God, he comes back to Damascus and he is confounding the Jews. He's confounding everybody. Let me tell you from scripture who Jesus is and how he's he's the Messiah. And they're like, man, we can't argue with you because it makes sense. Number one, if we're gonna be all that God has called us to be, the first step of preparation is we've gotta be a people that spend time with God, spend time in his word, spend time getting to know him. Number two, we have to persevere through hardships. We got to persevere through hardship. Again, here, here, here's, the, here, here's Saul. Again, I talked about this last week. Saul and the Apostle Paul, it's the same guy. I'm going to keep butchering their names. So as I say them, just know this is the same guy. Saul was a, a, a brilliant guy. He had an immense intellect. He had a razor-sharp lawyer's mind. He was a debater. He could sit, you, you ever met that guy who just is going to debate everything? And you're like, man, you're running circles around my mind. I don't even know what you're talking about. Maybe you're like, that's the way you're preaching today. I don't even know what you're talking about. This was the apostle Paul. He was brilliant. And now that he has spent some time with Jesus, now that he's with those, Damascus, with those disciples in Damascus, you think he's, he's ready, right? This guy is bold. He's arrogant. This is a guy who's probably going around knocking on people's door and is like, hey, you're going to go to hell unless you trust Jesus. Like, like could you picture the apostle Paul just excited to go and serve? But here's what happened in verse 23. It says, when many days had passed, this has been that three years, the Jews plotted to kill Saul. But the plot became known to him that they were watching the gates by day and night to kill him. But Saul's disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Next, he goes to Jerusalem. And it says in verse 28 that he's preaching boldly in the name of the Lord in Jerusalem. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. These are the people that stoned Stephen from a few weeks ago. But they were seeking to kill him. Verse 30, when the brothers, the Christians, when they learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. I don't know about you, but I'm reading the Bible. I'm like, wait a second, what just happened? What, like Saul, like this is a guy who's passionate for Jesus. This is a guy who is bold. He is smart. And remember, remember what, what Jesus told uh, Saul earlier in this chapter. He said uh, in, in Acts 9.15, he, uh, he said to Ananias, Saul is my chosen instrument. I'm going to use him to take my name to the Gentiles and the kings and the Israelites. Like, like, like this is Saul. Saul, you're going to be great. You're going to be used to do all these great things. And now Saul is in obedience. God, you want me to, to, to represent your name? God, you're calling me to be a witness in Jerusalem and Jay to the ends of the earth. You want me to make disciples of all nations? All right, God, I'm in. And I'm in Damascus and I'm preaching. And what happens? They try and kill him. And so he's got to get lowered in a basket so he can escape. 
And then he goes to Jerusalem, and you're like, yeah, go for it, Saul. I mean, that's like, this is the kind of guy we want in churches, right? You're going to be the, the vocal guy. Hey, you need to come to church. You need to come to Jesus. And Saul's in Jerusalem. Same thing. He's preaching, to, preaching about Jesus until the people try and kill him. And the disciples are like, huh, Saul, we got to do something. We're going to send you to Tarsus. We're going to send you away. You see, when Jesus said, I'm, you're going to be a chosen instrument of mine, and you're going to preach to the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, that's not all Jesus said. Because in verse 16, Jesus said, and I will show you how much he must suffer for my name. See, I think it's so interesting looking at verse 15 and 16 when, when, when God calls Saul to be a Christian. God says, I have chosen you, which is awesome. I have chosen you, and the very next verse, I have chosen you to suffer in my name. I have chosen you to suffer. See, here's the thing. Saul, if he would have been successful preaching the gospel, preaching in Damascus, preaching in Jerusalem, if, if he would have been great at that point, of course we'd say, well, the reason he's so great is because he's so gifted, because he had this dramatic salvation experience. And he would have been saying, oh, man, look how great I am. Look at all that I can do in the kingdom of God. But Jesus said in John 15, he said, uh, the one who remains in me and I remain in him produces much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think God allows his suffering, this hardship to come over Saul's life. So Saul learns not to depend on himself and his own wisdom, his own gifts, his own strength, but that he actually learns how to depend on God. Because this is what suffering and hardship does. Suffering and hardship, it strips our dependence from ourselves to where we have to fully depend on God. And this is what the apostle said in Romans chapter 5. He said, we rejoice in our sufferings because sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character and character produces hope. See, we go through these sufferings and these hard times and these difficult things. Why? So we learn how to depend on the Lord. So he strips away the strength that we have in our own life. So we can't say, look how great I am. Look at all that I've accomplished. No, he allows us to go through hardships so we learn how to give him the glory and depend on him. In fact, A.W. Tozer said this. He said, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. We want to be people that God uses to do great things. At some point, we have to learn the lesson. It's not our own strength. It's not our own power. It's not our greatness. That God will lead us into these hard things so we learn not to depend on ourselves, but we have to depend on him. Think about this. You look in scripture, you see it again and again and again. Moses, God calls Moses to lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. This is a great thing. And what does Moses have to do? God sends him into the wilderness for 40 years to tend his father-in-law's sheep. I don't know which one the suffering is, tending the sheep or hanging out with his father-in-law. Like, I don't know which one is worse, right? Not for me. My father-in-law's great, but, you know, some guys. Oh, Moses, you're going to do this great thing, but first you're going to go suffer for 40 years tending the sheep. What about David? David is anointed to be king over Israel by God. 
And what did David do? He spent 15 years running from Saul's rage and jealousy. What about Joseph? God says, Joseph, I'm going to use you to save Israel. What does God do first? Sends him into slavery and prison for 20 years. Listen, if dependence on God is our objective, then weakness is our advantage because weakness shows us and teaches us how to depend on God and not ourselves. Where we can't lean on our own strength and power. Suffering is the thing that gets us in touch with our weakness. So we have to depend on God. What is a hard what is a hardship for you? What is that suffering that you're in the middle of? So many times we go through hard things, we go through suffering, and we're like, God, are you punishing me? God, are you are you mad at me? Is that why I'm struggling like this? God, what are you doing? God, where are you? Listen, if that's you today and that hardship and that suffering, what if God is preparing you for something greater? What if God has, had you, has you in this season where you learn how to not depend on yourself, but to depend on him so he can do something great through you? Number three, and this preparation to, to be all that God has called us to be, is we've got to embrace the encouragement of others. It says in verse 26 that when Saul came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe he was actually a disciple. <laughs> like, this is probably logistical, right? Like, Saul's a guy who's murdering Christians. He's arresting Christians. He is persecuting the church. And now he walks into the church, we're going to be like, yeah, we don't want anything to do with that guy. We don't trust him. What if he's faking it? He's faking it so he can get an inside track to cause damage. Makes sense? But can you imagine if you were Saul? How crushing that would be? I mean, the Jews, the people he were a part of before, they've rejected him. And now he, he identifies as a Christian, and now the Christians are rejecting him as well. But look at verse 27. It says, But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared how on the road of Damascus he saw the Lord, and how he has spoke to him, and how in Damascus he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas comes along. Barnabas is known as a son of encouragement. He's the guy who steps up. He intercedes on the behalf of Saul. He vouches for him. See, I think, I think Barnabas sees something in Saul. He sees, man, there's a genuine faith there. Man, I see what God can do in Saul. And on the basis of, of Barnabas' own reputation, he goes before the apostles and he's like, hey guys, Saul's for real. We, we need to accept him. We need to encourage him. We need to believe him. We need to, to let him be a part of us. We need to train him. We need to allow him to be a part of it. Listen, you can call this whatever you, you can call this discipleship. You call this friendship. You call this encouragement. That's what Barnabas is doing. He's saying, hey, Saul, man, I'm with you. I got you. I know it's great. Saul, Saul will not be able to reach his God-given potential if it wasn't for people like Barnabas and Ananias who took a risk to say, you know what? I'm going to love you. I'm going to believe the best in you. I'm going to be your friend. I'm going to bring you with me and we're going to go do this together. You know, I, I hate to say this, 
But it's funny how us as Christians, how we have this, these great theologies about grace and love and mercy and redemption. And, and we, we believe those things about God. God is a God of grace and mercy. And we have that theology, yet we are so quick to distrust other people, to not believe the best in them, to not welcome them in. Isn't it funny how, how we have that great theology about the, the mercy and the grace and the love of God? Yes, sometimes we have a hard time actually living that out with one another. You know, I, I think about Barnabas and I think about Father's Day. Now, I, I don't pretend to have this father thing figured out, right? I mean, my, my dad joke game is on point. I'll just say that. Like, I, like I got that figured out. Uh, <laughs> but sometimes as a dad, like I don't know about you other dads, but sometimes I feel like I'm building the plane in the air. God, I don't know what I'm doing here. Would you just bless this? I, got, I feel like I'm making all these mistakes as a like any, any dads there? You know what I'm talking about? Listen, dads, you know what your kids need the most? You know what kids need the most? I'll tell you what, it's not your discipline. It's not your provision and your money. Those things are important. Don't get me wrong. But you know what your kids need the most? Your encouragement. They need you to believe in them. They need you to be Barnabas. They need you to come alongside them and say, man, I see God's hand in your life and I, I believe in you. And I'll encourage you. And this is the apostles, Paul. This is him spending time alone with God, wrestling with scripture. This is Paul uh, persevering through hardship. This is Paul receiving the encouragement from Barnabas. And this is what led Saul from being this hardened, hateful, brutal, bloody man to becoming the greatest missionary ever, to have a legacy that impacted people all over the world, including us. And here's the thing, I can't promise that you're going to be the Apostle Paul, that you'll have that kind of a legacy. But here's the summary for this message. Here's what I want you to understand that our God-given potential for us to be what God has called us to be is found when we are faithful to God's preparation for us. If we want to be all that God has called us to be and, and, and have that legacy, it's when we are faithful to the preparation that God has for us. And again, I don't know about you. I don't know what you want your life to be. You know, it's crazy to think about we live on this earth for our 60, 70, 80 years and all we get on our gravestone is a little dash, right? Born 1982, died 2082, and you get a little dash. Like, I want my dash to be a legacy. I want God to use me. I want to be known as somebody that had an impact on his family, on his friends, on his church, on his city. But you know, my legacy it's not because of my potential. My ability to, to, to make a difference is not because I have great dad jokes and because I'm gifted in such unique ways. No, it's because God has prepared us. God specializes in working through people just like Saul who don't have it all together. God specializes in working in people like Saul who have a background 
who have some baggage, who've been through some stuff. God specializes in working, people like, uh, working through people like Emily who say, I'm not the smartest in the room. I'm not the most equipped. But God specializes in that because your potential to be all that God has called you to be is not based on, on you and your gifts and your strength. It's based on you being faithful to God's preparation in your life. So let me ask you this morning, what is that hardship you're facing? What is that thing that looms over you? What is that thing that you're currently going through that gives you anxiety, keeps you up at night, stresses you out? What is that thing in your past that is still looming over you and haunts you? What is the thing that just feels overwhelming that leads you to feel like I'm at the end of myself? God, I'd do anything for relief. What is that for you? We all have experienced that in different stages of our life. Maybe it's joblessness. Maybe it's a friend who hurts you. Maybe it's depression. Maybe it's that season where marriage gets hard. Maybe it's the death of someone you depended on and you still feel that hole. Maybe it's your kids not going where you imagined them to go. Whatever it is, we can picture that. We can say, we don't know what's going on. This is not where we want to be. We say, God, God, can you just give me relief? God, I'm in this hardship. God, where are you? God, God, why am I in this season? Listen, I would say this, don't waste your hard times. Because those hard times is where you learn character, where you learn patience. This is where God teaches you. This is where you learn to trust in God and not in yourself. And you understand that's where the power is? That's why Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we go through these seasons of hardship so that we learn to depend on him. So that way it's him in us and not us in ourselves. Whatever that hardship you're facing, press on. Suffering leads to endurance. Endurance leads to character. And character leads to hope that we could become all that God has called us to be. In the middle of whatever hardship you're in, man, lean into the support that God's given you. Take encouragement from the other believers around you. Take support from other people around you, just like Saul had to do with Barnabas. He had to allow Barnabas to come and encourage him and be a part of his story. Here at Restoration Church, one of the things that we say, again, one of our family values is that we are a people that belong together. You know what that means? That when you're in the trenches, when you're going through that hard stuff, you don't got to go through it alone. You don't got to go through it alone. And there's people to walk through the hard stuff with you. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. Neither do I, but we'll go through it together. It's better together than alone. And I'll tell you what, just as much as our kids need dads to believe in them, you know what the church needs? People to believe in them. People to come alongside them to say, man, I'm with you. I'll vouch for you. I'll walk through this with you. We'll walk in together. In fact, I said this the, I've said this for the last three weeks. What if we get up on Sunday morning and think about coming to church and not about, oh, what we're going to get? 
oh, we're going to get a great joke and there's going to be some bacon and some good worship. Now, what if we actually woke up on Sunday morning and said, God, what do you want me to do at church today? Who do you want me to encourage? Who do you want me to speak to? Who do you want me to, to, to reach out to say, hey, let's get coffee this week. Let's talk through some stuff together. Let's walk through it together. Like, like church, that's what we need. That is how we be all that God has called us to be. I can look back in my life. I can look back and think about guys that have done this for me. I've talked about Jack. Jack was a guy, it's terrible, who wore socks with flip-flops. Like, you don't do that. That's gross. That's weird. You got the little flip-flop thing between your socks and your, and your first, like, don't do that. That's a no-no. Well, I'll tell you what. Jack took an interest in me and said, hey, let's walk through some stuff together. Taught me how to, to teach the Bible. Taught me how to, to love my wife, to deal with sin, to confess. Listen, that's what the church is about. Us together saying, hey, I'm going to walk alongside you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to be your Barnabas. Let's figure some stuff out together. We're going to press through those hard things. The other thing we need to make sure we're doing is spending time with God. Again, it's cliche. <laughs> Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? And it's cliche. We talk about this week after week, and, and I know it's, you're like, oh, man, you always say this. And I, the reason I always say this is because it took years for me to actually do this myself. And I've been in church a long time, and I, I will say there was uh, years where I'm sitting in the seats that you're in, and you're like, yeah, I should do that, and I never do. Listen, this is where I'm at right now. I'm, I'm, in my Bible reading plan, I'm reading, I'm reading through the Psalms. You know how much I love how real the Psalms are? I mean, David's like, David's like, God, my enemies are surrounding me. They're, 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 I'm running for my life. I'm sleeping in a cave, God. I'm cold. I'm alone. I'm hungry. And David's like, God, how long? God, where are you? God, what are you doing? And the very next word, he says, God, I trust you. God, you are good. God, you are loving. And I trust in you. You know how encouraging that is when you're struggling? But what do we do instead? Instead, when we're struggling, we binge on TikTok and Instagram and we binge on Netflix and we binge on, on ice cream. Like that's going to solve our problems. Again, it's, it's cliche, but if we're going to be all that God has called us to be, are you spending time with God? Reading his word, praying? Listen, maybe for you, Maybe it's kind of like Saul. You got to go to the wilderness in Arabia. Maybe you got to run up to White Pass and spend some time with God out there. For me, I run. And when I run, that's the time I pray the best. When I'm running, it's just me and God. And I'll tell you, there's times when I'm yelling at God, just like David. God, what are you doing here? God, I don't get this. But I come back to God, you are good and I trust let me close with this. <laughs> For Saul, his preparation to be all that God had called him to be involved some struggle. Yet his first words to Saul were, you are chosen. You are a chosen instrument of mine. He was chosen by God. Before God ever gave him a task to do, 
Before God said, this is what I want you to do in life, God called him to himself. He said, you are mine. See, what God is doing in you is just as or more important than what God is going to do through you. Before God ever called him to go and be a missionary and a church planter, God said, you are mine. I have chosen you as my instrument. Do you know how comforting it is to know that God has chosen you? You are chosen by God, which means that, that if you've placed your faith in Jesus, like, like God has drawn you to himself. God has chosen to set his love and his grace and his mercy on you. And that means that God's grace and God's love and his mercy is not dependent on you being good or you being bad. See, if, if I come to God in one of my good times, what happens when I face one of my bad times? Oh crap, I'm in trouble now. No, but the fact that God chose us, God chose you, means whether things are good or bad, he still chose you in the middle of that. And we have that promise from his word that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Listen, God has chosen to draw you to himself. The question is, will we surrender? It's my invitation for you today. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I believe today God is calling you into a relationship with him, to trust him as your savior and what he did on the cross for you. I'm gonna invite you today to surrender. Let's pray.